So we started around a campfire in 2004, and I don't know if you've ever solved the world's problems around a campfire, but that's where we started. Even if you don't go out into these areas, clean air and clean water should be important to you. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a standard of living. You and I and everybody listening to this owns 640 million acres. Let that sink in for a second. Like We all live like king. You know, we're not concerned about being in the back rooms and getting photo ops or being picked up by the black limo. You know, we, we care about the resource and what that means for the people. He was sponsored by one of our state senators, uh, which is absolutely embarrassing that um, a state senator is, is putting her arm around, uh, you know, the Bundys and their kind of um, their illegal activities. Folks today sometimes think that your voice doesn't count in the political process, and it absolutely does. And, and so that idea of like, you know, sharing some of your time, I think is essential. Hello, public landowners. This is Lan Tawney, president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And you're listening to Living Country in the City. This is episode 58. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey y'all, welcome to yet another episode of Living Country in the City. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Today I'm talking with Lan Tawney, President and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I'm super excited about this podcast today because BHA is uh, really one of the organizations that I am most passionate about. I really, you know, I'm, I really connect with their mission to protect our public lands and waters because as someone living in the middle of the city, I rely so much on public lands uh, all over the United States for my hunts and just for my enjoyment. So super excited to get this one going. Land, thanks so much for hopping on the call with me today. Oh man, so I'm looking forward to this. So if you could give me just maybe a little bit of background about yourself and how you got your start in hunting in the outdoors. Sure, so um, I'm lucky enough to have grown up in Montana as a fifth generation and with two parents that just love to get outdoors. So you know, at an early age, uh, 
two, I was on my dad's back fishing on the big old river. Um, I was, you know, five years old. I was in a duck mine with him and nine years old, uh, hiking up, you know, steep hills after elk. And while I couldn't pull the trigger, you know, at five or nine years old, I was with them. And so I got to see some really cool things and being engaged at a young age. And, you know, both my parents were also the first uh, full-time conservation lobbyists at the state legislature here in Helena, Montana. And so through a little osmosis there, I think I learned some things. And then uh, after that, my dad went to law school and um, became a conservation lawyer here in Montana ended up being uh, the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation. So when they started up in a trailer, kind of with small means up in uh, Troy, Montana, and then kind of grew to where they were when he passed away, but also and beyond. Um, you know, it's very similar to the growth that backcountry hunters and anglers have had. And so, you know, it's, it's fun for me to remember those times with my father and, and now kind of fast forwarding to where we are now. So speaking of where we're at now, uh, why don't you tell me, uh, a little bit then about backcountry hunters and anglers. What uh, what's what's the what's the elevator pitch? I mean, I think our you know we are the sportsman's voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife, and so we try to make sure that people have access to public lands and waters, and then the fish and wildlife habitat once you get there. And you know, there's nothing more unique than our public lands in this country. You and I and everybody listening to this owns 640 million acres. Let that sink in for a second. Like we all live like kings and didn't happen by accident. It's not going to be carried forward by accident, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we have uh, this special opportunity to help protect those places and, and make them even better. You know, BHA really kind of holds a special place in my, you know, however cheesy it sounds, holds a special place in my heart. Cause you know, I, I live in the middle of Los Angeles and, so what it comes down to is I don't I don't have access to much and short of spending obscene amounts of money public lands are my only chance to get out and enjoy nature and be able to hunt and fish and do anything and I know for a lot of other people that's that's the case so I really gravitated you know when I fa- first initially found out about BHA I really just gravitated towards your guys message and and everything you do because without access to public lands I just I would just be sitting in my apartment (laughs) is what it comes down to maybe the occasional hike in a city park that's so manicured there's just nothing wild about it yeah you know the I think public lands are the great equalizer right like it doesn't matter if uh, you're a school teacher in Missoula Montana you know, a, a movie producer in LA or, you know, a mechanic up in uh, Seattle, like that land does not care how much money you have. And it doesn't care who your parents were. You know, it's open to all of us. And to me, that's, uh, there couldn't be anything more American. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty special thing that, you know, that we need to help protect and promote. But uh, man, it's, uh, it's the envy of the world. Now, so how long has backcountry hunters and anglers been around again? So we started around a campfire in 2004, and I don't know if uh, you've ever solved the world's problems around a campfire, but that's where we started. Um, and uh, and then we were kind of volunteer-driven until 2010 when we got our first part-time staff. Um, and then really when I came on five years ago, uh, I was a second full-time employee. And um, and so we've you know we've come from humble beginnings. It's kind of I love to mention the Elk Foundation piece of them starting in a trailer up in Troy, Montana. That's kind of the same place we came from. It's really from, you know, the grassroots and 
we continue that mantra today, but we're, you know, throwing gasoline on that fire that was started. And um, now we've got 29 staff. Um, we've got chapters in 35 states, two Canadian provinces with four more chapters coming on. We've got about 18 and a half thousand members. Um, so, you know, we're, we're growing and uh, we're kind of living up to that, that first campfire where they really looked at, you know, there was no other organization that uh, was focused on public lands and waters. And so but here we are today. It's really, I mean, it's really amazing when you look at where you guys are at today and the voice that backcountry hunters and anglers has for our public lands. I mean, it's, it really is hard to believe that you're as young as you are. Yeah, you know, I think we're tapping into something. You know, it's that piece that I've already talked about that I think people, under, once they start to understand that they do own 640 million acres, you know, they want to do something about it. And then you look at, you know, Tough Mudders or Spartan Races or any kind of these kind of challenges that are happening right now. Well, the best challenge you can almost provide yourself is is really recreating on our public lands. You know, it's those places that provide solitude and challenge and adventure that you really can't get anywhere else. And um, so I think, you know, we're tapping into that piece. And uh, we're also, you know, we speak up for the for the resource first. And, you know, we're not concerned about being in the back rooms and getting photo ops or being picked up by the black limo. You know, we, we care about the resource and what that means for the people. And, uh, you know, we make no bones about that. And I think people you know, find that refreshing and um, so not only are I think we, we're growing, but we're also becoming effectively a, in the political arena. So when you say, you know, you're you're the the sportsman's voice for our public lands and waters, and and you're speaking up for our public lands, what is what does that entail? What does that mean, say, for someone just really not familiar with the issues at all? That's great. So. You know, we're strictly really an advocacy organization, and so we like to work all the way from a local level to a regional level out to Washington, D.C. So I'll give you kind of some examples at each. So at a local level, uh, there's some things going on where folks want to, you know, sell public lands. This is mostly at a, at a state level. Uh, so there was a forest up in Oregon called the Elliott State Forest, a state forest been open to hunting for decades, and the state decided that they couldn't make any more money off of that land. And they decided to sell it. And at that point, our members got together and, and said, we don't want this to happen. It's the place where we've been going. And the intrinsic values of that, plus the economy that's built around it, you know, means something to the local, uh, like local uh, communities. And so we got together and started a petition, had over I think 5,000 people signed that petition. And ultimately, the state land board decided not to sell that piece and actually change its designation from you know, solely purpose to raise money to uh, sole purpose was really as, as a hunting and fishing access and for conservation. So that's kind of at a local level and that's happening really all over the West right now. You know, these states that can't afford to manage their lands, they can either raise taxes or they can sell them. And in a lot of places are trying to sell them and we're trying to stave that off. Um, at a regional level, you know, I think more landscape level. And so there's a, a place in Idaho called the Clearwater Basin, and the Clearwater Basin is this large landscape, um, and we've been working with uh, timber folks, uh, off-road vehicle folks, um, county commissioners, other conservation organizations, and trying to look at that as a landscape. And so um, there's a proposal in front of us right now that would include 500,000 acres of new wilderness. Uh, 500 miles of wild and scenic river, and then uh, uh, one of the longest ATV routes in the West 
along with some increased timber harvest in the front country. So it's a path forward for everybody. It's taken, you know, over a decade to really think about, but that's kind of at that more kind of regional um, sort of landscape level. And then, of course, we go out to Washington, D.C. And, you know, unfortunately, that's a place where a lot of these decisions are made um, by Congress and that we need to play at that level. And, you know, as we've got larger, uh, we can influence that process more. But an example there is there's a thing called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. The Land and Water Conservation was, Fund was formed in 1964, really as offshore oil development was ramping up off the, the Gulf Coast. And basically the premise was you're going to take from one resource, put back to another. And so that legislation passed 99 to 1 way back in the day, which I don't think that happens out in Congress very often, (laughs) unless when they're they're voting like to go home or something. (laughs) But um, it stood the test of time, and it's really become our number one access fund in this country. And so not only um, is it used to provide access to inaccessible public lands or waters, an example of that would be 70% of the fishing access sites here in Montana are paid for by the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, but it also helps protect some of our most treasured landscapes. Uh, there's a place, places all over this country that now um, are protected and put into the in kind of into public ownership because of this fund. And so that fund is uh, set to sunset this year. Um, and we want to make sure that it's permanently authorized and fully funded and so that we can continue the great success on access, but also protecting some of our most treasured landscapes. So um, in that case, you know, we mobilize our members from all across the country, you know, in all 50 states. And now there are chapters, you know, cover 35 states. It's a great opportunity for us to leverage those chapters and talk to their own congressional members because, uh, you know, ultimately all politics is local and they like hearing from their own constituents. Absolutely. Now you mentioned something as part of that land and water conservation fund. Uh, yeah, you're you know you're specifically talking about there in Montana that uh, fishing access and and you know once again this podcast is really geared towards people that that don't necessarily have an understanding of all these issues and 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 how these things uh, work. So you say that this fishing access is paid for out of the land and water conservation fund. What what really does that that mean like uh, as far as the the access to something that's a great great question so you know you think about and this is rivers all over this country is they are kind of like the lifeblood and then also these places to escape you know ever anytime i'm on a piece of water i could be next to an interstate or you know next to some development and i don't even really remember that it's there because i'm focused on the water so Again, these places that provide solitude, really, um, and some of the solace, I guess, away from the craziness. Um, but these access, so what happens basically is that the funds are then distributed to the states. It depends on how big the state is and how big the population is. So a place like California uh, gets quite a bit of money. A place like Montana, where I'm from, it doesn't have a huge population, but has a large um, land base, like we get quite a bit of money too. And so this money has been used basically to put in boat ramps um, on, on these rivers and pay for access sites that include toilets and parking areas. And so that it's, while I say fishing access sites, that's access to that water for any kind of recreation. So folks that, you know, we've got stand up paddle boards now here in Montana, we've got big tuber hatches that happen or people just like to, uh, a float on the river. Um, or if you just want to go down, you know, with your kids and throw some rocks in, here's your opportunity to get on the river. And, you know, a lot of the land that is around rivers, since it's in the low country, is private land. And so these access points can provide you opportunities to get on that public water. So without them, 
really um, our access is restricted and uh, to that resource. So, um, you know, it's been essential here in Montana and all across the country um, to provide access to that public water. I think, you know, and I think what you brought up as part of that is is super key that people don't always realize that, yes, you're called backcountry hunters and anglers, and generally that's the angle you come at things from, but this is not just access for hunters and fishermen. This is access for everyone. All of these public lands are are used by hikers and campers and and day trippers and and you know anyone from families with with toddlers all the way to you know the biggest baddest backcountry hunter you have you know absolutely you know and i think that you know you think about people that go pick huckleberries and morale mushrooms or go mountain biking or you know backcountry skiing or you know mountain climbing like and all those users i think are one thing but then i think you know even if you don't go out into these areas Clean air and clean water should be important to you. <laughs> it's just a it's just a standard of living, and you know, in particular with uh, water, seventy percent of our our clean water starts on our public lands, and and so you know, when you think about this finite resource that uh, that continues. I think there's a saying here in Montana, which I think is probably true for the West, is that you know, uh, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, the the water resources, again, like even if you don't go and recreate in these public lands, uh, they mean something to you. Um, and so it's something for, for all Americans really to care about. Everybody has a stake. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So it's one of the, it's funny, it's one of those things where you, you look at that and you say, yeah, well, how can you oppose the idea of clean air and water and having this access to land but you guys do come up against opposition. What is some of the opposition you see to these uh, uh, public land access and clean clean air and water? I think it comes down to money. And, you know, when Roosevelt set in motion this legacy that we have today, you know, that is our kind of public lands and I would say our conservation legacy, you know, he, he did that with some applause. I mean, we put him up on Mount Rushmore, but at the same time, you know, he had his detractors. And those detractors were folks that really at that point were the timber barons and wanted to rape and pillage our forests with no kind of uh, look to the future for sustainable harvest. So um, those people, I think, are still at play, you know, and um, that's more, I think, like big industry. And so this is either people that want to steal it for themselves you know, and have their own little private kind of oasis, um, or um, they want to exploit them and for a short, short-term kind of buck. And that's what I think was the way of driving it. And if you think about like clean water in particular, you know, back in the sixties, uh, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. And this was about, you know, this was kind of an, an awakening text about the pollution that was going on in our rivers. I and mean, there was rivers that you could literally light on fire. And out of that came the Clean Water Act. And the Clean Water Act, you know, was passed um, 
signed into law by Nixon, um, Republicans, super you know, supported on both sides of the aisle. And you know, that's when clean water really meant something. And now, you know, as we're in this day and age, um, there's folks that want to roll back some of those protections that have really been, you know, bipartisanly supported for a long time. And so I think what's driving that, though, it's not people, you know, wanting all Americans to have dirty water. I think it's what is, what's driving that is that uh, is really that big industry that really wants to make money with little thought about what that means for the future. So, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's, 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 it's interesting stuff, but, um, you know, that's why uh, we're doing what we're doing and, and trying to engage people. Also, recently, uh, I noticed uh, BHA was speaking up uh, at the event thrown by the Bundys. Yes. What, uh, maybe tell us a little bit of the, the, the history behind that and what, uh, what BHA was there, uh, there trying to make a statement about. Yeah, so this is all shorthand this. Um, it is kind of a long, complicated story, <laughs> but there's this Bundy family that's been ranching out of Nevada for, you know, decades. Um, and uh, at one point, um, they decided to stop paying their grazing fees on federally managed public lands, that those lands that belong to you and I. Um, just to put that in context, their grazing fees on Bureau of Land Management, where they're grazing their cows, are about the dollar eighty three, uh, an AUM, which means how much it takes to raise a cow and a calf per month on that property, um, or on an acre, I guess. Um, the uh, <laughs> at a state level, that cost goes up to ten to fourteen dollars, and on a private level, that goes up to twenty to forty dollars. So when you think about like the deal they're getting, just keep that in mind. So they decided to stop paying uh, their grazing fees. Um, they said it was their land. Um, when ultimately that was you and I's land. And so they ended up running up uh, over a million dollar tab that they owed the American tax people. So at some point in 2014, the Bureau of Land Management said, you know, enough is enough. Uh, we're going to come confiscate your cows until you pay uh, this grazing fee. And again, they're stealing from the American people. Um, so they go to round up his cows, arm standoff happens, and uh, ultimately, uh, some folks get in trouble. Uh, Mr. Bundy absconds from the law for a little while um, and then gets thrown in jail um, when he goes to uh, uh, support his son in a takeover of a national wildlife refuge. So the first part is really that they didn't pay their, their grazing fees. The second piece, which I reference, is that uh, they go to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge up in Oregon. Uh, there have been some ranchers up there that have um, been caught um, lighting a fire, so arson, ended up burning down some things, and they got in some trouble for it. Um, and the Bundys saw this as an opportunity to try to defend, you know, another ranching community. But really, the ranchers up there didn't want them to come. And so they show up to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, they take it over by force with guns. Now, that was pretty easy because nobody was there at the office because it was their off-season. <laughs> Um, but they end up having this standoff, you know, now your national wildlife refuge for over a month and, and really flaunting the rule of law, but also, you know, they, they plowed in a new road. Um, they caused some major problems, uh, while they were there. And ultimately, you know, in both cases, uh, the federal government, I think really screwed up and the federal government on the, on the refuge piece, uh, they went for conspiracy charges, which were hard to prove. And so the Bundys walked and then um, they had some mishandling of some 
uh, evidence in the case um, for for the back when the cattle were uh, grazing for free. And so then both of those were declared mistrials. And so these folks have gotten off um, and and are now emboldened. And, you know, Mr. Bundy came to Montana. He was sponsored by one of our state senators, uh, which is absolutely embarrassing that um, a state senator is, is putting her arm around uh, you know, the Bundys and their kind of, um, their illegal activities. I mean, this would be like you and I, if we didn't get, you know, some special tag that we wanted or couldn't go fish in a certain place that we just decided to take up arms, um, and, uh, um, and demand that we get, you know, free, let's say a free bighorn sheep tag or something. Um, <laughs> Jeez. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I felt like doing that before, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the way we do things in this country is like civil discourse, right? And that's like, I mean, obviously we had a revolution, um, but the majority of the time, like we do it with civil discourse and these folks are flying the rule of law and um, really don't recognize the federal government at all. And so they have this rally here in Montana, again, supported by a state senator, Senator Jennifer Fielder. And, um, really, you know, tell, they tell all, um, all ranchers in Montana to stop paying their grazing fees. And, um, really it was like this religious experience. And, and to me, you know, they're a small fringe group, but, uh, left unchecked, you know, their, their thoughts start to permeate. And, you know, one of the things that came out of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, which takeover, which I thought was really interesting was they said, you know, Hey, we want to return this land to the people. Well, that refuge was bought by duck stamp dollars that anybody that hunts ducks has to pay. Um, it's managed by duck stamp dollars. And, and so that land belongs to the people. Like that's part of that 640 million acres that I've talked about before. And, and so when you say return to the people, like who are those people? It's not the American people. It's to a, you know, a small uh, few. And, and really I think that's what the crux of this whole thing is about is that they want to exploit it for themselves um, and, and really keep out the American people. So, um, that's kind of what's at stake, I guess, short and dirty. Um, it's unfortunate, uh, that, you know, they're allowed to kind of carry on the way they are. Uh, but you know, that's why BHA was there, um, was to provide an alternative voice and we're not going away. Um, in fact, we're building and, um, you know, to the Bundys, um, you know, they, their, I think mantra and their ideas will be stopped. You, you know, you bring up another interesting point too that I think people forget is you know uh, when talking about you know who owns the land and all of this and it is it's already owned by the public. This is not land that's necessarily and you know maybe call it semantics if you will, but this is not necessarily land that's owned by the federal government. It is public lands. It's owned by the taxpayers. It's managed by the federal government. And so when people say they're trying to return the land to the people, like you said, it's not just it's not returning it to the people. It's already owned by the people. It's absolutely return it's favoring a a single use for a a very small but very vocal minority. Absolutely. I think you nailed it on the head and that proves what a student you are of this uh of this issue, you know, is that um it's what, I mean, really, it's the envy of the world that you and I and all Americans own 640 million acres. And, you know, there are those that want to take it from us. And I think, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of trust in the people that we will keep these, um, you know, federally managed public lands in public hands. 
but that won't happen unless we um, unless we stand up. Well, and I think it's just it's super important for even us as individuals. It may seem like a small contribution, but you know when we're having those con- uh, conversations with our friends that may not be as aware of of the conservation issues and the public land issues, and especially those of us here in the city where it's not always on the forefront of your mind, but I guarantee there's no one that really values it more when you do get to get out there. Um, it, you know, we're, we're walking around Hollywood, whatever. And yeah, public lands aren't necessarily the first thing on. Well, I shouldn't say that about myself. Public lands are pretty much all that's ever on my mind at this point. I'm, I am walking through Hollywood sitting there thinking, man, where's the nearest mountain? It's a different kind of California dreaming, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Different type of California dreaming. And you know, uh, but a lot of people also don't realize that here in California, our public lands also include a significant amount of beach access and and yep. those trails going down to them. And it's not just that, you know, forested back, you know, that beautiful forested backcountry that, you know, a lot of us hunters fantasize about. But I think it's important when we're when we're spending time with our friends and, and doing that, that even just those individual conversations are so powerful because it's coming from some you know it it's not coming from a a, some news article or a facebook post that's shared very impersonally it's it's coming from someone that you know and trust and it's a lot easier to change hearts and minds on that individual level and it just happens exponentially i mean gosh i was (laughs) I was on a date a while back, and uh, long story short, the, the date involved two hours of me talking about uh, Pittman Robertson and <laughs> Dingell Johnson, and um, suffice to say, awesome. suffice That's- to say, I didn't get a second date. Uh, but she was the wrong one, then, right? Uh, exactly. Like, she doesn't care about that stuff, man. Like that's a, that's a good test right there. I I did actually. Uh, we talked afterwards though, and she's like, you know, I never knew any of that. You know, we talked about yeah. conservation. I mean, I she got me going, and then asked a couple of questions, and then I take no responsibility for my ramblings after that. But. Uh, <laughs> You know, it was she. She told me afterwards. She's like, you know, I never knew any of that, and I have a lot more respect for hunters. I have an understanding that it's not just the the beers and deers crowd. You know, um, right? It's that there's a lot more to it, and uh, that how it helps pay for access to public lands for everyone's use. Yeah, you know, I think those individual conversations, like you're talking about, you know, we have a we have a shirt that uh, is our best-selling shirt on the front of it. It says public landowner. And, I may or may know, not I, happen to be wearing one right now. Oh, <laughs> yes, you are. I love it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I almost guarantee you, and you can tell stories, but, you know, I wear that when I'm traveling all the time. And, you know, I have, you know, TSA agents give me high fives and say, yes, we do. And then I have people do it, like look at me and like, what does that mean? And, you know, I love those conversations when they ask me that. Because then it's exactly what you just said. It's that time to kind of give them kind of a talk about about how these public lands belong to them. And, you know, once people find out that they live like kings and own 640 million acres, <laughs> you kind of see this light bulb go off in their head, right? And, like, you know, and again, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that, 
you know, it's one of the ways the BHA has grown is kind of word of mouth. You know, we're not doing direct mail. We're doing um, really one-on-one conversations. And, and I think that's the way, like you said, we win hearts and minds and, um, you know, you create true believers. And I think that if people know, all of them are going to become true believers. Like it's really hard. And I, I think we've been talking in the office that we're thinking about a new t-shirt, like, you know, public lands more American than, than apple pie. <laughs> and, and it, and it totally is, you know, I mean, I, I like different types of pie. Um, but, uh, I think our public lands are the big unifier when people find that out. Um, you know, I think they have respect for them, but you got to use those opportunities to educate whether that's on a date or on the airplane, you know, get it done. Airplanes are great because people just can't get away from you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where you should start thinking about trying to pick up a date, right? Yeah, uh, there we go. Oh, geez. Uh, oh, I'm too busy for that anyway. But uh, no, I've had, I've actually had that a very similar experience wearing, wearing this public land owner uh, shirt is I'll have at work and, or just anywhere. Like I've had, I had, I think my boss asked me the other day, he was like, gosh, is that one of one of your weird, like anti-government t-shirts or something? What is it? (laughs) And I'm like, let me, hold on, hold on. Let me explain what it is. And, you know, we went through and got to have a uh, conversation about that. And, um, he's actually, he's actually a very open-minded guy about, uh, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but he's a very open-minded guy about the issues. And he's been out on, uh, I think he was out on uh, chucker hunts with a couple of my other coworkers that, um, that are hunters. And so he's been, uh, he's been out and we've had, we've had some good conversations about that stuff. And he's, you know, he's very familiar with, with uh, everything I'm doing with the podcast and, you know, the few of us that keep walking into the office and camo. So, (laughs) Right. Well, that's cool. And I bet, you know, I mean, I, depending on where he went, but you know, that trucker hunting was probably on public land. Oh, guarantee it was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think they were, uh, I think they were out in Idaho. Um, yeah, like Idaho, like, like along the snake river or something is classic, classic trucker hunting. Yeah. We've got a, I've got a, a coworker who, uh, he comes in for our big events. Uh, but he, um, he lives out in Idaho. Great guy. Uh, I actually crashed on his couch after my September elk hunt. I where I ended up injuring myself, but uh, spent a spent oh, a few no. day, few days uh, recovering on his couch before I had to make a twenty hour twenty hour drive home. So <laughs> no good, but yeah, good good people, good community. You know, it's uh, I work in the music industry, so it's definitely not always the most. Uh, friendly environment to to hunters but i'm i'm lucky that i've even within uh within my job kind of developed a, a good community of people that are friendly to the outdoors and and hunting and fishing and um with those people i think it's opened up a lot of conversations and people just at least in my office you know once again it's it's those individual conversations and it's really changed a lot of uh a lot of attitudes and um, the the conversations are had with uh, much more generosity on both sides. I think. <laughs> yeah, here's a so not to derail us too much, but what about Justin Timberlake? Speaking of the the music industry, wearing that like camo jacket and pants, and then like it looks like a stag deer on his shirt. Did you see that on the Super Bowl? Yeah, I think that was the like big. The that was show? the big. Uh, um, the big debate was whether it was an elk or a red stag. And I think the original painting, somebody finally found it 
uh, found the original painting and it was a red stag. Yeah, but <laughs> it wasn't hotly debated. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, I mean, blowing up everything on my entire feed, whether it was hunters arguing over what kind of camo it was or, um, you know, people just rolling their eyes at it. But uh, I think I think it has to do he... Somebody was saying like you released a new album. I'm I should probably know this. Uh, Man of the Outdoors. Man of the Woods. Man of yeah, the Man Woods. Man of the Outdoors though. or Man of the Woods. I think is what it is. Yeah. It probably had something to do with that. Whether you know, and who who knows? You know, we need to we need to get like someone like Cam Haynes to call him up and and put, totally. put a totally. bow in his hands. <laughs> that's I feel like that's Cam's specialty, calling up uh, <laughs> calling up uh, musicians or movie stars and being like, here, start hunting. And they're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that'd be I I would be very interested to uh I mean if nothing else, it it made a statement whether or not he is actually plans on going into the outdoors and and enjoying our public lands is is a whole different question, but uh it definitely made a statement and opens up uh a lot of conversations for sure. Absolutely. You know, I I mean Again, we don't really know kind of maybe his motivations or not, but even calling his new you know album, which again I haven't listened to, but Man in the Woods, like there's this iconic thing right about our public lands, and that goes back to like the I think the you know the Frontier Days or Theodore Roosevelt or Lewis and Clark, who, you know all this ex- exploration, and then this solace really that you can feel in the woods. You know, I mean I think people are covering that piece and. You know, the places that we can do that are our public lands. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's exactly what he's tapping into, but, you know, I got a feeling that it is because, you know, it's those places where you can get away from it all. And I'm guessing that he wants to do that once in a while just because of his crazy life. I can only, I can only imagine how much, uh, it's, it's bad enough for me. And I can only imagine for someone like him, but, um, it is, it's such an interesting thing because I feel like that whole, primal connection to nature and stuff in in so many ways is is looked down on now but because of that i think the people so many people value it even more it's you know i guess it all depends on who you're talking to or you know you get a lot of people that are like oh you know oh you feel like a man now that you you know gone out and killed an animal and whatever it is and i'm like well you know it it is kind of a, a gnarly man manly thing to do to go chase a bear with a bow, and you know what I I think that's cool, and I'm proud of it. And people look down on that, but just in general, there's a, such a primal connection with going out. And um, you know, I had this experience. I was out in Arizona, and I uh, you know I've built a hundred fire campfires in my life. Like I you know right. I've done camping since I was a kid. You know I. I I've built a hundred campfires, but most of the time, you know, they're in a, they're at a campsite, they're with a fire pit. I've either brought wood with me or, you know, at minimum I've collected wood and, but I've always used like some sort of fire starter or a lighter or whatever it was. And, you know, I realized the other day I was out in Arizona and I, you know, built my own, built a fire ring and gathered some wood together and gathered some tinder and everything. And without any paper, without anything but what I'd gathered and a flint uh and then my my flint and tinder in my my pocket, I built I built a fire and I, it just occurred to me that that was the first time I'd ever done that without any sort of 
I guess, modern help, if you will. You know, whether that's, you know, an oil-soaked fire starter or some just some paper or a light and a lighter. Yep. And yep. I just had this moment. I sat by that fire until it burned all the way down, and it was just it was just this great experience for me um, that I you know I wouldn't have had if it, if I wasn't out there on our public lands. You know, I I wouldn't have bothered if I was just car camping out of uh, you know out of a paved campsite kind of a thing. Totally, and I think you know what you just described. I mean, I think is when we were talking about earlier about, you know, maybe how some people look down on hunting and it's, I think they don't understand it for one. They don't understand the, the food and the connection and the really admiration that we have for those animals. Um, but it's also, you know, that pulling the trigger piece or letting an arrow fly is about five to 10, you know, whatever. That's a, it's a small time frame of really what goes on out there. And I think, you know, that piece that you just described about, building a fire and it's kind of like how that centered you. And, you know, and I, I see, you know, saw a bighorn owl this last year when I was hunting elk and, you know, it's just this awesome experience of this owl overhead on this pine tree or, you know, kingfishers when I'm out duck hunting or a great blue heron when I'm out fishing. I mean, all these kind of other things make that experience happen. And I think are, are much appreciated by me. And I think much appreciated by, you know, most hunters and anglers. And, so that piece, you know, that we are putting food on the table um, is only a small fraction of really um, what that whole experience is about. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovas.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. So if people wanted to start educating themselves on a lot of the issues facing uh, facing our public lands and, and access and our public waters... What, uh, where, where would they start? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you can start by going to our website, backcountryhunters.org. Um, we've got a ton of information there. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. We also have an Instagram account. And while Instagram has, you know, quite a few pictures, we also weave in some kind of conservation messages there. Um, but that's where I would start. Um, and then really, you know, I think, um, reading as well you know i think there's a lot of books in this country that uh that you can get after and i'd suggest anything really about theodore roosevelt and you start to hear about kind of where our conservation legacy came from and i think you get a good understanding of of where we are today um but that's where i would start you know it's really at backcountryhunters.org uh and then uh, and check out you know i think douglas brinkley's book called wilderness warrior about roosevelt is a really good one um to start with Fantastic. And I'll make sure to put up links to all that on the show notes page. That'll be livingcountryinthecity.com slash 58 for episode 58. Um, One one of the cool things about the BHA website is I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time on there. Uh, You know, BHA has local chapters, you know, it's, it's not just some national organization that's nameless. Uh, You know, you have, people in each state that are familiar with the issues that are are 
working uh, working on a more local level. And and there's definitely there's chapter pages on on the website. It's got contact info for each of the chapters. It's got I think each uh, a lot of them even have links to current uh, current issues. Let me look at the California page yep. here. Yeah, California is one of our fastest uh, growing chapters as well. And then uh, realizing that we're actually hiring somebody uh, right now to cover Nevada and California. So we'll have staff on the ground soon in California, um, you know, to help amplify the voice, you know, really of our grassroots folks. And that's what we're trying to do all across the country. And I think you describe our chapters well. These are boots on the ground, people that know the issues, they know the landscapes. Um, so there's a couple of things there. One, they can get, you know, engaged in uh, – in public policy, but also, you know, they're willing to, you know, like spread that and that knowledge wealth a little bit. So we have a lot of folks that are new hunters um, and anglers that are coming to our ranks and, you know, our members are more than happy to kind of uh, spread some of that knowledge that they've learned over years. So um, there's twofold kind of both on the policy side and then as well as and kind of uh, getting people out as well. Well, you know, and I have a lot of people that, that come to me and they're like, Hey, you know, uh, how do, how do I get started? You know, I would want to meet other hunters and, and find people. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people talk to me about, uh, you know, will I take them on a hunt? And I'm like, trust me, I'm the last, I, I have no clue what I'm doing really. <laughs> I'm the last person who's taking you on a hunt. Um, but, but, you know, I, the first thing I always tell them is I'm like, hop on Facebook, find the group, you know, for your local chapter, backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, pretty much every single one's got them. Follow them on Instagram. Go on the website, yep. join, you know, it, what is it? I think 35 bucks for the year uh, to join. It's BHA. $25. It's $25. It's like, I mean. See, look, I'm even overselling it here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so $25 for a year. I mean, I spend uh, more on Dunkin' Donuts than I, <laughs> I do on that. Right? Or like. Uh... I mean, you can't even like go out for a meal for twenty five dollars really anymore, right? So, definitely, I mean, it's, uh, definitely not in LA. Yeah, and you get you get like our magazine four times a year. You know, you get connected to the local chapter, and um, you know, again, I think those Facebook each each of our states have a, a individual chapter uh, Facebook page, which you have to be um, accepted into. But the, I mean, I, we accept pretty much everybody. Um, and I think I'm a member of like nine different states. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. And so you see the activity there and, um, you know, it's an opportunity to ask questions and, and also connect with people, which is pretty cool. Definitely. And you know, the, you, you'll start getting local emails about events, whether or not, whether those are pint nights, uh, or hike to hunt events, or, uh, even just one of the cool things is, you guys have no problem spreading the word about other, you know, conservation events. It's one of those huge things, you know, conservation is not this like competition to who can, you know, who can save the wildlife better. Um, and so all the time, you know, I get, I see emails come through. Uh, there's one recently about an, an event down towards San Diego, uh, building guzzlers for, uh, for sheep, uh, we had another one come in, come up in our Facebook group that's coming up in March where we're going to be doing a sheep survey, and and it there's just so many opportunities to connect with other hunters and give back to conservation. You know, I, I've had this discussion with so many people lately. Buying your tags and buying some ammo and saying you're a conservationist because of Pittman Robertson, 
just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, you know, even if you can't afford to you know, donate financially, you can find time to spend one weekend, you know, helping survey sheep for the for the California fishing game and and you know who knows you know yeah we can't as far as I'm aware there's there's no way I'm get ever hunting bighorn sheep here in Southern California but you know maybe in the future there'll be enough because I you know I volunteered at these efforts both whether it's building guzzlers or doing surveys that maybe you know my future kids or somebody else's kids can have that bighorn sheep hunt you know yeah, you know, I think I always tell people when I'm talking to a crowd, you know, at a pint night, you know, or one of our brew fest or storytelling night is that, you know, what do we need? We need your, we need your time and money. And, you know, that time piece is probably almost more important. And, you know, I think volunteering, like you're talking about, or, you know, some of the things we've been talking about today is volunteering, uh, really your time by making a phone call or sending an email and, you know, folks today, sometimes think that your voice doesn't count in the political process and it absolutely does. And, and so that idea of like, you know, sharing some of your time, I think is essential. And, you know, we watched it happen for those that have been paying attention. You know, the Congressman Chaffetz from Utah last year introduced a bill to sell 3 million acres in the West. And, you know, that was met with fierce opposition that included phone calls and then a huge backlash on Instagram. And, you know, he ended up pulling back that bill within a week. And, and he did that because of the public outcry. And so I like to say the squeaky wheel still gets the grease in this country, but you got to use that voice. You know, you don't speak up. You know, we, uh, you really don't have anything to complain about. So that time, whether it's volunteering, I think, to do cleanups or surveys um, to like making a phone call or sending an email, I think are vitally important. Well, you know, you can you can get all the donations in the world, but unless you have people to do something with that with you know what that money can buy there you know it it they don't do much good you know it's it's super important that you have you have the boots on the ground to equal the the money that's coming in and uh, i think uh you know you've got groups uh like two percent for conservation now which i think is doing such a great thing um and I mean, I've I've been working to make sure Living Country in the City is involved with that. I, I think I've got a little more paperwork to do. I got to go find a notary somewhere. But you know, making sure that people are yeah once again yeah donating, making that financial donation to conservation, but then also requiring that that time donation as well. Um, whatever whatever that is, like you said, whether it's it's sitting down and and making those calls it's i mean it's super easy you really don't have to even talk to anyone 90 percent of the time you talk to some you talk you're not sitting there like debating the the issues with your senator you're right you know you're talking to their you're talking to their secretary or their assistant and you're just basically saying like hey i oppose this bill and they're like okay thank you you know here's here's my number if we need to follow up kind of a thing yeah um and mm -hmm. they take down the notes and it's it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, they're keeping score is what they're doing, right? Like, and you talk to, you know, I know a lot of congressional staff, and, you know, they basically, you know, somebody calls them, and they're, you know, yay or nay on a bill, and they're keeping score, and then they're giving that information to um, their boss, and then their boss, you know, does what they want with that. But, you know, if they're getting, you know, I've talked to folks, they say if, if they get one phone call, they feel like that represents, you know, 50 to 100 people, uh, that feel the same way. So then you start having 10 calls, 15 calls, 20 calls, 
that starts to make a pretty big difference. And, uh, and it's something that they tell their boss uh, that they have a conversation about. So are they going to always, you know, side with you? I would say no. Um, but if you don't use your voice, you know, you don't have that opportunity. So use your voice. Definitely. It is not a difficult thing to do. Trust me. I, I, I most people uh, tell me to stop using my voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't do that, man. Keep using it. High five across the airways for doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, so as we're, uh, as we're winding down, uh, we already talked about, uh, where to find BHA online. If uh, folks wanted to find you, follow all your shenanigans, uh, where can they find uh, you specifically online? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram um, and I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. So Instagram, I think it's just land Tawny and the same thing for the other two. Um, but you know, L E N D T A W N E Y. And I keep a lookout for the gap to smile that you'll know it's me. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so one thing I always like to end with is, you know, as I said before, this is really geared towards new hunters or folks that may not have grown up uh, or they're maybe they're from the city, don't have as immediate access to the outdoors. Um, I get a lot of people that are just like, I don't even know where to start. It's so intimidating, but I want to, I want to become a hunter or I want to start fishing or, you know, I just, I really want to be an outdoors person. If somebody came up to you and, and said they were intimidated, didn't really know where to start, what advice would you give that person? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is is that, you know, you've said it already, but I would say the same thing. Like, I've grown up hunting and fishing. I've been in the woods a ton, and I still screw up all the time. And so, you know, don't be afraid to fail. In fact, failure, you know, is one of these things that I think you – you learn from and that, you know, these public lands and waters provide you the opportunity to, to fail and then keep coming back. And so I think, you know, that's the first thing I would say is that don't be intimidated and really, um, you know, be ready to fail and to learn from that failure. And that's, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of things that way. Um, I, mean, I think the second thing is, is, is really try to find, you know, a mentor and, you know, you can find a lot of things online these days. You know, we have an awesome YouTube series uh, on kind of some techniques that you can use out in the woods, a lot of survival kind of woodsmanship stuff. And then also some um, things around hunting. Um, but, you know, listen to watch Stephen Ranello, listen to Randy Newberg, listen to the gritty Bowman, uh, really immerse yourself in kind of these folks that are our experts and then try to find somebody that's a mentor. And I think that last piece, it's probably the hardest piece, but, you know, I think our responsibility as existing hunters is for us to be open to those conversations and, and really willing to take people out. And if all of us just took out one person a year, I think, uh, you know, our, our ranks would be swelling. And even if those folks don't become longtime hunters, uh, they, at least they understand a different perspective. And I think what you uh, mentioned earlier, you know, kind of like the, the beers and deers crowd, right. I and mean, that's like, it's just not who we are. And I think that, um, you know, having those conversations. So um, the biggest one there though, is just be prepared to get out there in the woods and, 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 and have a good time and don't take it too seriously. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with the listeners today. And I appreciate you hopping on. Man, thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, you know, I, like I, I said it kind of jokingly, but you've got this bully pulpit that you're using with this podcast. You're using your, you know, conversation, the individual conversation to talk to people, and you're calling them your elected officials. And, you know, I just appreciate you doing that, and hopefully your, you know, your, uh, 
helping engage other folks uh, to do the same. So big high five to you across the airwaves as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, y'all, that'll do it for episode 58 of Living Country in the City. Make sure y'all head on over to our show notes page at livingcountryinthecity.com slash 58. Give Land and BHA a follow. Make sure y'all hop online if you're not BHA members. I really can't think of many organizations that are more important to support. So go check them out, backcountryhunters.org, and become a member. Uh, Find your local chapter, get involved. But in the meantime... Keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com. Oh, and there was a book. Um, there was a book of, like, hot dudes holding puppies or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine where that went. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv